Today is Friday, October 6th, 2017. Time for episode 29 of the Barnhart Podcast. In addition to being the first Friday of the month, today is the eve of the dual feast of Our Lady of Victory and Our Lady of the Rosary, and it's the second last day of the Novena for the Conversion of Father Martin S.J. You've gotten some interesting feedback from some folks that you wanted to share, Anne? Yeah, um, a lot of folks have obviously joined in the novena. One one email that came in in particular that I just wanted to share the gist of it with everyone is a guy who emailed in and said, you know, the first day or two of praying the rosary for for James Martin, um, it was just it was horrible. It was just all he could do to just muscle through praying for this this man who is who is doing so much damage and is such an enemy of God and his holy church. But what you will find out and what this uh, this listener, uh, this this correspondent emailed in and said is that as it goes on, the more you pray for your enemies, the easier and easier it gets. And um, the more the more you really become aware of how these people are are human beings created by God in his image and likeness. God loves James Martin every bit as much as he loves you, me, everyone else, all the people that we love, all the quote unquote good guys that 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 we love and and hopefully also ourselves. And I mean, we're to, we're told to think about love of neighbor in terms of ourselves. Um, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And obviously, the ultimate truth is is that you love people like James Martin as completely odious and wretched. And, and doing evil, spectacularly evil things in the world now that they're doing, but you love them because God loves them. God made James Martin. God does not want James Martin to go to hell. God wants James Martin to repent of this, to revert to Catholicism, to die in a state of grace and achieve the beatific vision. And if, if James Martin's good enough for God, then uh, it needs to be good enough for us too. So, if you're having difficulties with like James Martin or even people in your own life, I mean, your own personal enemies in your own life, I think for many people, many people have, uh, you know, quote unquote, ex-spouses, even though we know civil divorce is a fiction. A lot of people have ex-spouses who um, they just find it almost impossible to pray for because there's so much animosity there. And I'm telling you, man, if you if you want someone who is just hurt you and scandalized you grievously to not be living in your mind rent-free for the rest of your life, you need to start praying for them. And it's going to be terrible and awful at first, but you need to keep with it and keep going. It's And we hear this over and over and over again. Pray for your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Even in the context of war, um, you know, when a Catholic army is is prepared to go into battle, just about the last thing that they should be doing is praying for the souls of the people that they are about to kill, you know, and they, they fully intend to kill them. And it is our intention that we are now going to kill these people and we are going to win this battle definitively and decisively. Last thing before we go do that, let's pray for these people's souls. Um, so praying for your enemies is is huge. And if praying for James Martin kind of gets gets people started and gets people thinking about that, in a sense, praying for someone like James Martin is almost easier than praying for someone who has hurt you personally. Um, so I think praying for public figures that, you know, are clearly enemies of God in his holy church is actually a good way to start. And then you can you can 
transfer into praying for um, spouses that have hurt you, parents that have hurt you, employers that have hurt you, et cetera, et cetera. So, oh, in, in terms of uh, enemies for whom to pray, it is a target-rich environment these days. Mm, indeed, indeed. There's there's plenty, and you know, in my aftermath prayer petitions. You know, (laughs) the the priests generally want to close close the church and and go have their dinner after mass because I generally go in the evening, and um, you know I can't I can't take a half an hour to say all my after mass prayers. So you know, big big category header that you know God and and the communion of saints everybody just understands is um, all of my enemies. So. that's that's the nice thing about prayer is that you can you can paint with a fairly broad brush, you know, and um, God God knows exactly who you're talking about. So please do pray pray for your enemies, pray for the enemies of Christ and His Holy Church. Well, just defining your intentions ahead of time. I mean, uh, for our our daily rosary, typically what my wife and I say is for our regular intentions, but on on a ideally weekly basis, we do enumerate that all specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the the idea being that you're not you're not being a slacker to say yeah for my normal intentions no, we that's because instead of taking five minutes to actually go through and enumerate all of the godchildren all of the specific intentions that we're yeah. dealing with <laughs> at the moment uh, all of the special intentions the people who are praying for us the people for whom we are praying mm-hmm. all of those different things we're not it's it's kind of the same idea of of, of attaching uh, if you're trying to overcome some particular thing or pray for some particular thing every time you stub your toe if you're a, a klutz or some certain thing you attach a prayer to that action and uh, it, it's it's a way of shorthanding it um, but it's it's not it's not impolite or or it's not it's no. not irreverent just because it's it's saving time. Exactly. And it also, I think we've talked about this before, but the dynamic with the benefactor masses, and we were talking about the Monday, uh, the Monday benefactor mass priest, and he was checking in and he's deployed and please pray for him. But, you know, I, I do not form, keep a list of names of people in any way. These priests have not received in any way the names, a list of names. In fact, I don't, I wouldn't do that for security reasons. I would never, I would never do that. It's, it, we're, we're talking about God here. This is a supernatural dynamic. So, you know, God and I have this arrangement that anyone who ever gives me money is a benefactor or just even a supporter um, supporting with prayers, et cetera, et cetera. Once you're in to that category, and again, God is keeping track of this, you're in and you stay in. And every single benefactor mass is for this ever-growing list of people, even if you decide, even if you decide that you hate me, uh, that it doesn't matter if you have ever given me any money or ever said a prayer for me or given me any level of support, whatever, you're on that list and you you will never come off of it so long as these benefactor masses continue, however however long the, the, the divine providence says that this dynamic in my life is going to continue on. Um, so there, there doesn't have to be any any formalized written down list because remember God is the actor God is the actor it's the same thing with the requiem masses that's why we can have this enormous huge swathing intention of every week our the barnhart requiem mass is said by this priest and it's said for everyone who has died in the previous week um 
So, so no need to to email in and say put my yeah, my no. relative's name on on the requiem mass. It's just done. It's done. It's done. And and God knows, and God is the actor, and God is is very 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 happy to oblige us in this. He's very eager to help us pray for other people, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the way these things work. And we're talking about an infinite pool of merits here and graces at every single mass. So there's right. there's more than enough to go around. It's just a matter of uh, how well disposed are we to receive what is what is coming from heaven. Right. In terms of large topics, one we kind of skipped over a little bit because we wanted to um, address some other things in the last podcast. Catalonian secession. This last mm. this last Sunday, uh, the the residents of Catalonia or those who de- who decided to brave the uh, the government forces and actually go vote upwards of 90% of them voted to separate into their own state and no longer be part of Spain. And apparently they're waiting for the, the final mail-in ballots to come in before declaring this official. But news is that on Monday, Catalan is going to declare independence from Spain. Mm -hmm. This is kind of a big deal for not just political reasons, but also for financial reasons. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've been talking about this. I've been talking about Catalonia and other secessionist movements in Europe for quite some time, for years now. And now it's finally all coming to a head. This is really important, what's going on in Catalonia. The first point I want to make about this secession is that the dynamic that's ultimately driving right now um, that's ultimately driving these secessionist movements. It isn't, in fact, you you might think that it's all this, um, the Muslim invasion force that's invading Europe. That's, that's a secondary. In fact, we might even call that dynamic number two in some areas. But what, what this is first and foremost all about is it's about people generally in a more economically productive and a more, uh, raw commodity rich section of a country, be it Spain, be it Italy, um, the UK, whatever. And they are incensed at this, um, the debt that is being incurred and dumped on them without basically any say. So for example, if we're going to talk about Spain, the, the capital of Spain is obviously Madrid. So the people in Barcelona and Catalonia, they are, they are extremely angry about the debt and this welfare state that has been created in Madrid that is a function of this Soros New World Order, European um, Eurozone, European Central Bank, et cetera, et cetera. They know... The people in Catalonia know that basically Brussels, which is where the the EU was run out of, um, Brussels is running Madrid. The people in Catalonia for years now have been looking at this debt, at this debt that's being run up and that they're being saddled with because they are basically Barcelona and that surrounding area. That's the most economically vibrant part of Spain. And they're saying, we don't want this. We don't want anything to do with this. We do not consent to this debt, but we have no recourse. There's just the government will not listen, will not pay attention. It is completely out of control. We're essentially having our our futures, our economic lives taken away from us, ourselves and our children being effectively enslaved by these Soros evil people in in Brussels and so forth, and these corrupt politicians who were in bed with the Soros machine in Madrid. 
what these secessionist movements are about is are people looking at this debt load and saying, how in the world can we get ourselves out from under this debt? How can we legally extract ourselves from liability from this debt that we don't want, that we objected to, but that we're essentially being saddled with because we're the economically productive sector of this sovereign nation, in this case, Spain? And what these people have come to the conclusion very rapidly, but even, I mean, rapidly in the historical sense over the course of, you know, a decade or two, what they're figuring out is what you have to do is you have to secede. You have to legally remove yourself from Madrid and say, we're done with you. We're not, we're not going to be legally tied to this debt. And I think that's what's driving a lot of this. Now, on Monday, um, or whenever it's going to happen. Yeah, Monday, I think they're saying that if they if they formally announce that they're seceding, oh, this is this is going to be absolutely huge. And isn't it interesting how all of this stuff, these events just keep converging. I mean, we're we're just we're just a little over a month away from the 13th of October. And look at what we've got. We have a little over a week away. Oh, I'm sorry, a little over a week away. I'm sorry. And we're only a little over a week away. And we have, you know, Spain now legally splitting. There's other countries. There's a lot of other countries in um, in Europe and also in South America, in Brazil. Um, How about the United are, States? California wants to go. And I think the other 49 states would be just fine with that. Yeah. Northern California wants to turn into Jeffersonia or Jefferson or something like that. Yeah. Um, And it's and that's it's for exactly the same reason. I'm glad you brought that up. They're looking down at Jerry Brown, Moonbat, pot smoking, hippie retard down in Sacramento. And, you know, his just he's just insane. He's like, let's spend 10 billion dollars building a train that no one is going to ride and just crap like that. While the state of California is just in massive, massive debt and, you know, Fresno and the valley up there around Fresno is just economically destroyed because they turn off the water to save some some minnow or some just absolute nonsense like this. Um, It's the same thing. It's sane, reasonable people wanting to get legally extracted from malevolent insaniacs in in wherever their capital is so that they're not saddled with this debt. So there's other countries that are looking at this. Italy. Italy is very has a very strong secessionist movement um, up in the north and specifically in the northeast in the area that surround that basically is the old Republic of Venice. Um, the old Republic of Venice now in the northeast part of Italy there's a strong secessionist movement up there. They want to get away from Rome. They want to get away from the sovereign debt. They want to just, you know, leave us alone and let's just, you know, we're all kind of friends, but we don't need to be, we don't need to be the same country. And it's absolutely true. You look at a map of of Europe now, and it's largely these these boundaries are all very recent. They're they're a function of Freemasonic revolutions that took place in the 19th century, and of course they're they're a function of World War One and of course World War Two. Well, in the so case of exa- Italy, that was the Freemasonic unification in order to overthrow and break up, or the other way around, break up and then overthrow the papal states. So this exactly. was it was it yeah. was an act of violence to take all of these historically independent city states 
states and regions to put them together as the massive uh, moral force to say, we want to have one united Italy and we don't want the Pope ruling it. That had nothing to do with the actual will of the people wanting to come together, unlike, say, Bismarck pulling off the unification of Germany, where they had a sense of, of, of common interest against the French, too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and historically, an antipathy there. So unifying the Germans wasn't as hard as, as the Italians. That actually took external force uh, to a certain degree. So it, in, in terms of all of these countries, I mean, you don't have to go that far back in history to see that these are were never uh, monolithic nation states. I mean, you, we, right. we look at we look at Spain. That was four four uh, at least four countries uh, when Isabella and, and Ferdinand united. And by the way. Part of the reason for uniting was to drive the Muslims out of Spain. Well, okay, that that didn't seem to work in the long run, and it's kind of ironic that more Muslims are coming into Spain now, and it's going to break up into into uh, uh, separate parts, as at least as it's looking like it's going to. But back to the financial angle of it, have the folks in um, Catalan in, in Barcelona have they brought up the term odious debt yet? Because I recall when the Greeks had their issues right after um, it was about the same time as the MF Global collapse happened. There was a, a a political regime change in Athens, and uh, the the head of the party there, who ended up winning parliament, started using the term "We are going to declare the debt odious," and yeah. that has a particular legalistic meaning that was essentially going to, at, at least the way some people were looking at it, that was going to annul the debt. And EU uh, financial regulators went into overdrive to make sure that didn't happen. I would not be surprised if the folks in Barcelona are saying something similar right now. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. I mean, so they've had this this referendum. They knew this was going to happen. They knew they were going to win. Of course, they have a document set up and ready to go on Monday. That's why they're saying something's going to happen on Monday. We're going to make a declaration. Their declaration has has been written. It's been written for a while. And if it doesn't include something about odious debt or something similar and, and a very legalistically precise language that that says the point of this is that we are extracting ourselves and we we do not take any responsibility nor will we accept any responsibility for this debt that was forced upon us. Oh, I'll be shocked. And I, I don't even think it's possible because, again, this is the driving force behind all of this. So uh, you brought up an interesting point. Um, all of these countries uh, – as we all learned from the MF Global debacle and John Corzine in the fall of 2011, people are aggressively trading derivatives on sovereign debt instruments. Corzine himself was trading um, Italian sovereign paper and he was trading Spanish sovereign paper. All of the pigs, um, Portugal, Italy, Ireland, Greece, Spain, P-I-I-G-S. But he had a huge position. I think his largest position was actually an Italian paper. And but it's he isn't trading so much the straight up bonds to the country directly. What these people are trading is they're trading derivatives. And sometimes these derivatives are just levels and levels and levels and levels deep because you know, someone will will create this new instrument, um, you know, bundle bundle the first level of futures contracts, turn that into a fund, create a derivative on that. Okay, now you're at level two. Well, when the market for level two kind of poops out and there isn't really any, there aren't really any um, good deals or inefficiencies left in that market, specifically in options or credit default swaps, they they 
bundle and repackage and issue a new derivative, a derivative. And that'll be the third level. And then at the very beginning, there's inefficiencies in that market. People go in and trade that, et cetera, et cetera. I don't even know how many levels deep these derivatives contracts are by now. And the other thing, which I cover in my economics video, I explain all of this, credit default swaps, all of it. People are trading what are called credit default swaps on um, sovereign paper and derivatives on sovereign paper. Mostly the, the CDS is mostly on the derivatives. So um, even though CDS are, credit default swaps are a derivative in and of themselves, but for example, in my business, you know, we traded a lot of options on cattle futures. So the cattle futures contract in and of itself is the first level derivative. And then the second level derivative is the puts and calls that we were trading on the cattle futures themselves. So that's how you get into these multiple levels. So I'm going to take a wild guess and say a lot of people in the financial community who actually make their living in finance don't fully understand this. And what I, the reason I say that is, as a programmer, I haven't done much work with the C language, and I'm not going to get too geeky on this, but there's a concept in the C programming language of memory pointers. And that's the one concept that weeds people out of, of C programming when they first start learning about it is this idea of pointers and this abstraction. And you get pointers to pointers to array of pointers and all, all kinds of other things. It just gets out of, out of hand to the people who, who can't really wrap their mind around it very quickly. And this sounds a lot like that. It's so many it layers is. of abstraction yeah. that even the people in the field, I would imagine, have a hard time understanding oh, it. Absolutely. I saw this with my own eyes. I worked in an office where the manager who, you know, made lots and lots and lots of money, every time he would put in an option order, we would have to sit there, stop what we were doing and listen to him because he put it in wrong every time. And he would be he would be trying to explain options to clients and he would say things that were were completely wrong. Um so there are people like, for example, me, myself, I understand the, I understand option theory. There's another class of people who are literally savants. And so they can do mathematical calculations in their head and figure out how much a given, a given option or derivative should be worth. Um, they can do, um, I, I, the, the biggest spread I ever did in my business was I would do an option spread that had three legs and I understood it. I could see it in my mind and I could explain it to other people. And in fact, uh, the people who came to my level two cattle marketing school, I actually did a module explaining some option spreads to people. And we went through a whole thing and had it laid out in the workbook and they understood it by the time we were done. Um, but there are, there are savants who trade derivatives and specifically spreads on derivatives and they can get up into where there are five or six or seven legs and because they have these just bizarre minds they can keep track of all this stuff and they can see that as the underlying market moves then the the spread should change by this much and again we're talking about a spread that has five six seven legs to it um so yeah there are people like that but there's, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of people running around who really don't understand. You know, they're just they're just told by someone, hey, this is a good deal. You should um, you should sell this put. This is a this premium on this put is is too high for what it should be relative to how far out of the money it is, and da da da. And so people just say, okay, yeah. Um, I, I always endeavored in my business, and and one of the reasons that I had a lot of 
small clients, small sized clients, is because I developed a reputation of being good at explaining things. And so, you know, some farmer or rancher out in Kansas would say, well, I know I'd like to buy a put option on my crop of feeder cattle to protect me if the market goes down, but I don't understand options. And people would say, well, you know, you should call, you should call Ann Barnhart because she can explain all that to you. And oftentimes what we would do is even if, if the, if the rancher in question needed, for example, 10 contracts, we would only do one so that he could watch and see exactly how it worked. And he could see how, okay, if the market goes up, then the price of the option goes down and da-da-da-da-da. And you, he could see how the value, the time value of the option would just erode and erode and erode over time. And then if you go through one cycle like that and you've been watching your position every day, it really becomes quite clear and it's quite easy and I'm helping to explain things to you. And I'm not, and obviously I wasn't the kind of broker who was acting like I was so important that I didn't have time to deal with a guy who only needed a few contracts or even just one contract. I was never nasty and mean and arrogant to people. Well, I mean, I, w- I would be nasty and mean when, for example, I would get horrific bad fills off the floor. And a couple times I called and yelled at people on the floor because they had clearly just dropped the ball. Um, but, you know, in my overall reputation in terms of my clientele was you can f- you can feel OK calling Anne and asking her, hey, can you please explain this to me? I'd like to I'd like to kind of get my head around this. I was I was good at explaining things. Um, so that's what we did. But in terms of these credit default swaps, here's the deal. All these credit default swaps, people buy these things. And what they are is their insurance policies, their options on sovereign paper and sovereign paper derivatives. So you've got Spain and you've got people who have either Spanish paper directly or they have futures contracts effectively on on Spanish bonds. And they want to protect in case there's a default on by the sovereign government on the Spanish debt. And the, okay. the bonds would be for like the, the massive freeway system they built that nobody drives on or the, the sure. new aircraft carriers they're building or whatever it is that the, the, the windmills for making electricity that constantly kill birds and break and burst into flames. All, all, the, all the infrastructure stuff that's being built in Spain, typically that's what the bonds are for, right? Well, and now, sadly, because our governments are all so messed up, these sovereign governments are now having to issue issue paper just to make welfare payments and stuff like that. Um, so it's all coming out of the central bank, and and it's Spanish debt. It's backed by the, just like in the United States, it's backed by the full faith and credit of the Spanish government. Again, take that for what it's worth. But you can buy credit default swaps. You can buy options on uh, sovereign paper, Spanish paper, so that if there is a default event, or they call it a credit event, if Spain defaults on its paper, on its sovereign paper, then in theory, what's supposed to happen and why these people are buying these credit default swaps is that it gives you protection. Credit default swap, it is exactly what what its name implies. If you have a CDS on a Spanish uh, sovereign debt position, what that means is that the, your counterparty, the person who's on the other side of the transaction that you did on the credit default swap, you give them the, the sovereign debt position, which has been defaulted on and presumably is not going to pay out. You're not going to get 
um, the full amount of your principal back. You're not going to get your your interest back, et cetera, et cetera. You swap that with the counterparty. And then they they get to get any whatever's left over. You know, if there's any payout at all on it, they get that. In exchange for, just like an insurance company, you have paid them a premium. So that's that's the risk reward there. And then you're made whole. Um, so, but the, the problem with this is, is there, there's a central body that gets to determine, and it's totally the fox guarding the hen house. There's a central body that gets to determine when, in fact, a credit event has happened. And if they say, mm, no, that isn't a credit event, then none of these options, none of these credit default swaps are triggered. And here's the thing, and this is why I don't understand. I don't understand why anyone would buy um, a, a credit default swap to protect on the downside. This, this body, it's called the International Swaps and Derivatives Association, the ISDA. It's, it's a industry group. It's all of these banks. I mean, you know, it's Goldman Sachs. It's JP Morgan. It's all of these people. And then all of the European, Deutsche Bank, da, 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 da. It's the fox guarding the hen house. All these people get together, form a committee, and they and only they have, have the say as to what, what constitutes a, a credit event. So when this crap happened in Greece a few years ago, the ISDA, they, they were like, no, um, it's not really a credit event. Like, what are you talking about? It's not a credit event. Of course it's a credit event. They said, no, there was still a little bit of, there was still a little bit of payout and a little bit of the, the principal sum was returned. So we're not, de- we're not going to declare it a credit event. I got news for you people. The ISDA is never going to declare a credit event on anything that happens. I don't understand why people are trading CDSs on on the sovereign paper because the ISDA, it's a criminal organization. It's it's almost exactly like the National Futures Association in the United States, which is a straight up criminal association. It is it's a mafia. It's a racketeering front. Um, It's all of these people. It's it's called a self-regulatory body because it's comprised of people in the industry itself. Let me fill you in on something. The counterparty, the people who are writing all of these credit default swaps, almost all of them are written by the mega banks. They're all being written by Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, the big boys, you know, Deutsche Bank, all of that. Those are the ones who are writing all of this. They're the ones who get to determine. Do you see how, how perverse this is? They're the ones who get to determine if a credit event has even happened such that the credit default swaps would be triggered. They're never going to declare a credit event so that they never have to pay out on anything. They're never going to declare. So uh, the whole thing is corrupt. It's massively corrupt. And um, so in terms of Europe, you've got these people trading all of this. It, it, it's, just, it's a complete house of cards. Everybody, everybody knows it, but it just has so much momentum and it is so huge. That it just keeps going and going and going. And if you've watched my, you know, two and a half hour economics presentation, I go in and lay out how much derivatives derivatives exposure these banks have. And these banks, just one bank, 
is carrying multiple trillions, with a T, trillions of dollars in derivatives exposure on credit default swaps and repurchase agreements and stuff like this. Trillions of dollars. We're talking about, you know, things that are bigger than than the entire gross domestic product of the United States, you know, put put the top five banks derivatives exposure in the U.S. together. And it's way more than the total gross domestic product of the United States. And you look at this and you just say, there's no way this can be anything other than a complete farce and a complete house of cards. They don't even know what the total global notional value of derivatives exposure is, but they know it's in the quadrillions. They know it's in the quad. There isn't. I thought it was quintillions, I, but that, well, that the point is it's orders of magnitudes beyond what the actual money supply is. But let me ask this question there. It's mm-hmm. all insurance policies, so to speak. Don't a lot of these cancel each other out. So the real exposure is not in the quintillions, but maybe, well, maybe nothing because they all balance each other out. That's one of the arguments um, I've heard. It is one of the arguments that you've heard, but again, the notional value of of exposure is so high, and I made this point in the economics presentation, that even if you give all of this like a 90% haircut or even a 95% haircut and say, yeah, when this thing collapses, it'll it'll collapse symmetrically, a lot of stuff will cancel each other out. And all you'll be left with is like a remainder of 5% of the notional value that will need to be settled and will need to be paid out on. Okay, quadrillions multiplied by 5%. You're still talking about tens, if not into the hundreds of trillions of dollars. Nobody really knows. And these numbers are so enormous. One thing I used to do on the website is I would take some of these numbers and I would I would look up and say okay how many how many acres of land total are there for example in the United States and then divide for example divide JP Morgan's um, derivatives exposure into the number of acres of land in the United States and see how much it is per acre well it's it's higher than the average than the average value per acre. You, I mean, it, you can just start doing weird mental exercises like that because the thing the thing that happens with people is you get into these numbers that are so enormous that the human brain just you can't really get your head around a trillion. Um, these numbers are just so big that in in a certain way they just become they just become words. They almost become meaningless to people. I mean, we all remember. I'm 40 years old, and I remember very clearly in my adult life when a billion dollars was considered an enormous amount of money, even in terms of the federal government. A billion dollars was considered an enormous amount of money. Now it is literally, literally a rounding error. It's just a rounding error. So we're moving because these numbers are so big and people have be just in a sense become detached from them having any real meaning. They're able to just keep going and going and going and people just start shrugging their shoulders. So you go from 1 billion to 10 billion and then from 10 billion to 100 billion and then you cross that line into a trillion and then it's tens of trillions. You know, I mean, look at what's happened to wh- what they're reporting as um, as the debt. I mean, when 
understand when Obama came in, it was 10 trillion or just barely under 10 trillion. And now just since Obama came in, it's doubled and you're now over 20 trillion. And people just look at that and it's just they they can't process it. So they just tell themselves that it doesn't matter. Um, but it does or, matter. Or all the, of these the idea that debt is good because that's, that's how we finance things as, yeah, though, exactly. as though a negative can become a positive. A negative can become a positive. And again, I, I, I will say until my dying breath that what that is all a function of is people not believing or having been convinced that money has nothing to do with human life. When in fact, my theory of money is that money is a fungible proxy for the human capacity to labor, produce, and create through time. That money in effectively, effectively is this economic tradable unit of basically human life. This is why we have the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet, et cetera, et cetera. If you steal something, another, if you steal someone else's money or someone else's property, you're you're stealing in effect they okay they've worked however many years they've used that that those years of their life of work to buy whatever a house a parcel of land a car whatever it is if they buy it and they own it and it's theirs if you steal it from them you're effectively stealing the years of their life that they had to spend to working to to get money, which they then chose to turn into that piece of of real property. That's why stealing is wrong. Um, that's why Marxism is wrong. Forced coercion, forced redistribution of wealth. You're, you're screwing with people's lives. You're saying essentially that human life has no value. And isn't that exactly the case? Isn't that when you come down to it, that is the base premise pretty much of Marxism is that human life essentially has no value. And so therefore you can run up debt. You can, you can forcibly redistribute wealth, um, so on and so forth. Because at the end of the day, these people don't believe that human life really has any value. And let's, let's put at the head of that line, Jorge Bergoglio, the anti-pope, all of his materialism, all of his crap about running up debt, you know, th- throwing welfare payments at people, giving free crap to people, da 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 da, without any cause, care, or concern about the money, the debt that's all has to underlie all of that. Why? Why doesn't he care? Why doesn't he care about debt and all of this? It's because, as he's made perfectly clear, he does not believe in hell. Um, it's it. We can then start asking the question: If if he doesn't believe in hell, if he explicitly denies that hell exists, well, he's explicitly denying the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the Gospels. So you can then reasonably ask the question: do, Does he believe? in in our lord does he believe in god does he believe in the holy church does he believe in even a beatific vision a lot of them don't they don't believe in any of it and so they if if man's end is just to to die to go into the ground and rot and there's nothing beyond that there's no eternal soul Therefore, there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no consequence for sin. 
at that point, yes, they do believe that human life is essentially meaningless. And so it's nothing for them to then forcibly redistribute, um, r- rack up massive amounts of debt, et cetera, et cetera. Because to them, you know what? It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because the end of man is to rot in the ground and to have basically his soul annihilated. So yeah, they don't care. That's why they don't care. And that is where Marxism comes from. That's where, that's what it's all springing out of. See, these things are all connected. All this economics, all the monetary theory and what's going on in the church, political dynamics, you know, Spain breaking up and, and it is the breakup of Spain I think what's going to happen is if if they do this, if Catalonia does this and makes a formal declaration, I think that a lot of other people in Europe, I think the people in the old Venetian Republic in the Veneto are going to look at that and say, oh, look, they did it and they did it fairly easily. Um, I think there are other uh, Scotland has already had a referendum um, so it will probably revivify and embolden the the Scottish movement. There's there's multiple movements. The Bosque, the Bosque, who are neighbors to Catalonia, they've always wanted to break free of France and Spain. They've always wanted to have their own thing. That will embolden them. Um, there's talk about Bavaria wanting to split away from the rest of Germany. Um, I think you're going to see all kinds of very interesting things and a new one that I wasn't terribly aware of, but apparently, you know, the better part of Brazil wants to break away and wants to form its own country. And of course, Brazil is a massive, massive country in terms of landmass. Um, yeah, and, and, and an up and coming economic juggernaut too. I mean, yep. in terms of other, other areas, France, I think when there are areas in Brittany, Normandy, Provence, Aquitaine, yep. all want to become their own thing. There's a, a section that wants to join with, with um, the Bosques as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also Andorra there. I forget what the deal with, they, they already are independent, but I thought there was somebody who wanted to join on with them. Mm-hmm. There's there's too many to count, and this goes back into history that these all used to be independent. So it's it's not yeah. like uh, this is some new group saying I don't like the the taxation. No, there are deep historical roots. Uh, it's it's like somebody from Texas saying I want to be my own country. Well, you go down there, and the the common opinion of most people in Texas is, is that they are bordered by two foreign countries, Mexico and the United States. So yeah. they've always had that notion of of Texas nationhood, Republic of Texas. As sure. opposed to just being a state. And no, they don't have the, the ability to pass a single vote to secede from the union. That's garbage that a lot of people seem to think is still true. Uh, they would have to do the full formal thing that a lot of people in California want to do. But uh, they, they still have that identity of statehood that used to be really prevalent in the South, I mean, before the Civil War. I mean, the, the idea that, you know, Robert E. Lee was a Virginian first and, and, a, and a, an American second and a very distant second at that. It's even more so in Europe when, when you can trace your family line back hundreds of years, uh, coats of arms and, and, and a lot of history there. Well, and I mean, it's even, it's even stronger in a sense in Europe. I mean, obviously these, these are clearly separate nations. These are clearly separate groups of people. You cross from one border, go from one town to the next. And these people are speaking a completely different language, which is not going on. I mean, it is Texas to Mexico. Yes. But Texas to to um, Texas to New Mexico, Texas to Louisiana. Well, I guess the Cajuns. <laughs> but you Louisiana know what I'm saying. Louisiana is very different. But that Louisiana that's legitimate. Is different. But set it aside. 
<laughs> That's right. Um, but I mean, obviously, obviously, Europe is uh, many, many, many small nation states, obviously. And I, I am in favor of there being more nation states decentralizing, breaking this stuff up. It's subsidiarity. It's subsidiarity. We don't need to do going towards this, the EU and the Eurozone and the Euro currency. That's bad. That is very, very bad. It needs to go the other way. Italy, for example, we were talking about Italy. Italy clearly needs to break up into three, if not four separate nations. And beyond that, each one of those separate nations needs to have its own currency. Yes, have a northern Italian state, a central Italian state, which would be like the old papal states, and then a southern southern Italian state, which would include Naples, which is incredibly economically depressed. And then let, you know, Sicily and the islands be their own nation state. Um, and then what that enables, if you get separate nations with separate currencies. Finally, finally, the southern part of Italy, which has been horrifically economically depressed for just decades and decades and decades, will finally have its own super weak currency, which will do what? It will attract investment and they will have an economic revival in the south of Italy. This notion that the south of Italy is on the same currency and is trying to compete economically with Germany and Finland, I mean, th this is abject insanity, and it will never work. And so that's why the southern part of Europe, and you know, you can put Spain into this category, Portugal into this category, trying to have Portugal, Spain, Italy competing with Germany and, and Scandinavia in terms of um, currencies and so forth. This, this, this is nuts. And you're just holding these people down. The key to all of this is to break it up and decentralize it. Uh, now, the same thing, talking about the United States, uh, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting question, which I can obvi obviously argue both sides. Does the U.S., is there too much central power in Washington, D.C.? Well, of course, obviously. However, what I've written about and the point I make about the United States is that if you break up the United States, and it, it's, I don't know, it's probably going to happen one way or the other, whether we like it or not. But here's what's going to happen. We all know, looking at presidential election cycles, for example, that all of these communists are intensely packed onto the coasts. They're, they're in New England and they're out in like Southern California. And then there's a couple pockets, you know, Florida, Chicago is obviously communist, Seattle is communist. So what would happen, and this is what's so terrifying about breaking up the United States, is that the, the commies would have the coasts and the ports and I mean, what do you do at that point? They are going to, they're going to keep following Moonbeam Jerry Brown and these corruptocrats like that who will just drive them into destitute poverty. And then what's going to be expected to happen? The central parts of the United States that might break up and are at least, at least have a semblance of sanity and fiscal responsibility they're either going to have to financially bail out the communists 
or they're going to have to fight a hot war in order to get control of the ports, because if you don't get control of the ports, these communist imbeciles are literally going to invite the Chinese, um, the UN, they're going to invite um, peacekeeping forces in to help them, quote, quote unquote, help them when everything collapses and they're all starving to death because they're all helpless. Um, it, 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 there's nothing good about this. And so you're going to have it. What would it eventually devolve into is they would just keep compactifying and compactifying and compactifying the normal, sane, reasonable people into the center of the landmass, you know, pushing people into into Denver, pushing people into Kentucky, Tennessee, and just keep pushing them in and pushing them in and pushing them in until it's just fish in a barrel. And I, I mean, I've always warned, I've warned that where I ultimately see this going in the United States is is the Chinese People's Liberation Army with boots on the ground invited to come in through the West Coast. Um, the Chinese, they have hundreds of millions of too many men because they had the one child policy and they aborted all of their daughters. And so they have this problem. They have hundreds of millions, too many men that do not have a female to mate with. And so, yeah, you know, the Chinese being the godless pagans that they are, who again feel that human life has no value because they don't believe in any sort of telos. At best, they're Buddhists. And Buddhists believe that we're all chasing the great nothing, that the greatest thing that a human being can do is realize that there is nothing and that there is no reality. And you reach this nirvana by getting in contact with the fact and realizing the fact that there is absolutely nothing. Nothing exists. There is no reality. Great. That's the best of them. You know, that's that's the best religious aspect of them. The rest of them are just complete communist atheist don't human life humans are just chunks of meat that are completely expendable to be used at will and therefore they would have no problem mounting some sort of an invasion ultimately of the north american landmass would they take casualties of course they would i mean for goodness sake read about the korean war read about what what chinese military tactics were during korea the Chinese had so many men that they would send, you know, on foot, they would charge, they would charge positions with men with no guns. They would just run human flesh at the enemy without even arming them. That's how, that's how, how many of them there were and how cheap human life is to them. So to say, would they be willing to at some point in the future, mount an invasion of the North American landmass? Of course they would. Oh, of course they would. I think I've heard it like- said that a column 22 people wide in China marching into the sea would never end because of the number of people they have in China and the ability to replace those who die. And so certainly China has the, the manpower and they're, they're you know, potentially locked and loaded to do any number of things militarily. Mm-hmm. One of the questions is why do they why don't they? And one of the books I read back in uh, 2011 or so, uh, it's a book by James Rickards called Currency Wars. And I, I want to read just a, a brief uh, part of, of a summary. Currency wars are one of the most destructive and feared outcomes in international economics. At best, they offer the sorry spectacle of countries stealing growth from their trading partners. And at worst, they degrade into sequential bouts of inflation, recession, retaliation, 
and sometimes actual violence. And mm-hmm. he sets the stage in this book that a currency war would be the prelude to an actual shooting war. And when and to bring this back to the initial topic, the scenario just pulling something out of thin air, how could this possibly play out? He started his scenario in this book with Spain defaulting on their national debt. <laughs> well, if Catalan and uh, some other re- regions yep. say, this is odious debt, we're not paying it, we're splitting out, mm-hmm. you get to figure out how to deal with this on your own. Yep. Um, have fun with that. You know, and it's another consideration here too, uh, the Ukraine and Georgia were candidates for inclusion in NATO at one point. And one of the you know, great chessboard theories going on is that the Russians may have provoked or, or had, had some boots on the ground assisting. But they, in, in the case of Georgia, Abkhazia and South Ossetia, they have now official territory disputes within the region of Georgia. In the case of the Ukraine, the Crimea now voted and said, no, we're part of Russia. They have internal territory disputes, which, mm-hmm. which officially bars them from, from consideration for joining NATO. Because you have one of the one of the requirements for joining NATO is you have to have territorial integrity. You can't mm-hmm. have an internal civil war that just opens the door for you being able to claim that it was an outside actor. We all have to come to your defense. I yeah. don't know if having an internal dispute pop up would suspend a current NATO member, but in the case of Spain, that if that provision exists in NATO. That could end up with Spain being suspended from NATO. If other European countries see this happening in, in, with, with, with uh, Catalan and say, hey, we want a piece of that action too, you could have a whole series of, of NATO countries suddenly not eligible for NATO, and this could give rise to the EU army. It's like, hey, okay, fine. Yeah. Um, Catalan, you want to become your own state? Fine, but it's, it's within the EU. Your military forces, you belong to Brussels now. Uh, this could end up being something that on the surface looks good uh, for everybody involved. And maybe there will be a financial bailout, but one of the strings you, or one of the things you'd have to accept is this whole EU army thing. And again, what are they going to do with that at some point? They're going to fight somebody. You don't build an army for no reason, typically. But the idea being that you have all these powder kegs being lined up and a more efficient one in the case of an EU army, um, who exactly would they be deploying that against? I don't know. It, it, and also, too, it's like where would where would the UK be in all of this? You look at the at the the lines of of where everything is. It's getting very eerie that it almost starts to line up with with the the geography described in 1984. Mm-hmm. So exactly, it, it, it's a it's a whole powder keg, and and it could be that Spain is the the catalyst for setting the whole thing off. The question is is at what point will this European Central Government, European Central Bank, Soros, um, massive derivative market edifice. When will this look at these events and say, in order to um, not have to declare um, credit events on any of this, and in order to maintain something like, like NATO that you just described, when will they turn to violence? Um, because once you cross that, you, you're pretty much never going to go back. If, if they start that, if they go to violence, it's going, they're going to have to either completely and totally crush everything and establish just a Europe wide totalitarian regime, or they're going to lose. And so I think, I think they know, I suspect they know how incredibly high the stakes are, but you know, this is all coming to a head. They're not going to just lay down and let um, and let these these nations default. There's they are going to fight back, and these are these are psychopaths. the The question I have is that I don't think that 
I don't think that these nations in Europe have the standing army. I mean, obviously, the United States has a standing army. Um, but I, I just really don't think that there are sufficient numbers of standing army, of standing military in Europe to actually to actually prosecute a war like this. I, it seems to me that they're going to have to bring people in. And then that that question becomes, well, who is it? Who is this army that would be brought in to enforce the will of, of the New World Order Soros machine on Europe? Would it would it be Russia? Is it is it in is it in Putin's best interest? Or would Putin would Putin come in and just say, this is my chance to invade Europe and pick up and, you know, pick up all of these puppet states? Um, well, the individual nations of, of Europe definitely have militaries and they've been practicing um, operating together, whether it was Libya or Afghanistan for the last how many years we've been there. That's been a NATO battleground. And in terms of, hey, let's let's practice coordinating and how we would fight a war with each other. The skeleton ability to do that is there. And all they need mm-hmm. to do now is flush out the the full you know numbers of divisions and whatnot. Germany, for example, they they definitely have the ability to operate interactively with with Austria, with with uh, Belgium, with France and all the rest of them. It's just a matter of. You know, they don't they don't have the numbers per se, but they could right. recruit people. They've already got all the doctrines and, and, and everything in place, how to coordinate with a univer- with a European army. They've got most of the same hardware, or a lot, I shouldn't say the most, a lot of the same hardware. Um, it's certainly all in- interactive or, or interchangeable with a lot of the NATO components. I was going to say something else and I forgot now. <laughs> <laughs> it happens to me all the time. <laughs> It'll come to you at three o'clock in the morning tomorrow and you'll sit up in bed and go, ah! Why didn't I say that? It happens to me all the time. Um, yeah, so things are really coming to a head. And yes, absolutely do watch this situation in Catalonia. The one last thing I want to say about Catalonia, and this is scary, is that of all the regions in Spain, the area that has the highest concentration of musloids is dun, 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 Catalonia. So that's another variable that's mixed into this this soup pot of what's going on. Um the, there could be movement if Catalonia breaks away and is initially destabilized, that there could be an attempt by musloids to reassert. And certainly they, they want to call that. They would definitely want to call that part of, part of the new caliphate. So that's all in play as well. It's, it's just the whole thing's awful. But it's, it's to be expected. How can, how can we say that we're surprised by any of this at this point? I thought the Muslim name for all of Spain or all, all of Iberia was Andalusia. And there is, Andalus, a, there is a, yep. there's a province in South Spain now called Andalusia. And I believe that's some, a place that wants to secede also if they get the chance. But mm-hmm. it's just they're not as, as um, vigorous about it as, as, the, as the Catalans and the Basques. Certainly. And I think the reason why there there's this high concentration of musloids in and around Barcelona is obviously because that's where these people have gone because it's the best economy in Spain. And it's just it's probably it's just that dynamic. It's not so much the historical cultural. It's the, you know, going where going where there's the most jobs and and money flying around. Um, But yeah, that's where it is right now. So keep keep a close eye on all of this. Something else that occurred to me, and this isn't what I was forgetting, is the the, the discussion earlier about um, the International Swaps Derivatives Association and the National mm-hmm. uh, Futures Association deciding when a credit event takes place. It, it has nothing to do with the market technicals, it, it seems, and it's all about politics and whether or yep. not they're going to be able to make money on it. 
And I am still trying to put notes together for the the second iteration of, of the uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency um, podcast. And one of the things I'm still trying to wrap my head around is the whole idea of smart contracts. And I think in in describing the mechanisms of, of um, how credit events are declared or not declared to have happened, I think that's going to be a big reason why smart contracts are never going to be implemented to the degree of replacing credit default swaps, because if it's all cold mathematics, then we could trigger something by accident or, you know, lose control of a situation. Oh, I, I remember what I was going to say with regard to um, Europe and armies and banks and everything. I mm-hmm. wouldn't put it past the the bankers and everybody else who's, who are have a potential to lose things. I wouldn't put it past them to have a script uh, in place of how they would, you know, pull levers and pull strings and not let some crisis go to waste. Um, I, I think no matter how you slice it, they're going to figure out a way to make money and oh, whether, course, yeah. and whether it means Europe descending into civil war, uh, China putting boots on the ground in the West coast of the United States, I think they've got multiple contingencies. I mean, I saw a headline recently where somebody, some liberal news outfit was freaking out that we have Pentagon plans for invading, I don't forget what country it was. It's like, are you people idiots? That's what the people in the five-sided puzzle palace are supposed to do. They're supposed to make plans for invading everyone. I guarantee there's at least four different plans for invading Canada. Not that yeah, we'll ever yeah. do it. Well, maybe mm-hmm. maybe if the Chinese take over, we might need to execute one of those plans. But just the idea of if you don't have a contingency plan for something, whether you are international bankers or Pentagon people, you're not doing your job. So, it Yeah. It's yeah. all happening, coming to a head or seeming to come to a head in October, which why is this month so popular mm. for overthrows and mm. revolutions? And oh, it's, well, and it's the 100th anniversary of the October Revolution of um, 1917. It's also mm. Fatima. but It's also Fatima. Yeah. Well, what is it with October? Yeah. Well, I would hasten to remind people, just just look at Venezuela and look at what's going on there and understand that the very, very small number of people who are in control of Venezuela are perfectly content, perfectly content to see Venezuela destroyed, completely and totally destroyed. They don't care as long as their personal wealth and power continues to increase. They will burn that whole thing to the ground, to the ground, as long as their personal wealth and their personal power continues to increase. You could make another example of this, um, uh, Zimbabwe and Robert Mugabe, completely content to economically destroy his own country, doesn't care as long as his wealth and his power is intact and continues to increase. North Korea, you can say the same thing. The, The small, small number of people who are in control of North Korea absolutely do not care, do not care that their, for example, their GDP is just a teeny tiny fraction of what South Korea's is and and is a tiny fraction of what the North Korean economy could be. They don't care. All that matters is themselves. And it's it's hard for for sane, rational, more importantly, morally sane people to get their heads around this. How could you be content to see your entire country burn to the ground? How could you be content to see that no matter how rich you got? Because it it really is. It's impossible for a morally sane person to be able to comprehend that. But you have to understand that those are the dynamics in play. 
And there are people in Washington, D.C. There are people all throughout Europe, all throughout the world who would be absolutely content to see everything burned to the ground as long as they still had, you know, their 30,000 square foot house and Mercedes sitting in the front and, you know, all the food and all the booze and all the hookers and everything that they could ever want. As long as they still have all that, it just doesn't matter. So when you like, for example, with Obamacare, Obamacare is the current object lesson in all of this. They knew and they have they fully knew what was going to happen in terms of insurance premiums. And this is all part of the plan. They fully knew and expected that every year health insurance premiums were going to increase by 20, 30, 40 percent every year because it's obvious. It's math. It's it's completely obvious. They see that people are now having to spend a third of their income. Well, they don't have to, but people are now spending a third of their income. Some people are paying more per month for health insurance premiums for their family than they are for their mortgage. They all see this going on. They knew it was going to happen. I'm guys, I'm telling you, they do not care. Not only do they do not care, they relish and luxuriate in it because it's a manifestation of their power, their control. And it, it only amasses more wealth and more power to them. They're completely content to see this happen. So you cannot even appeal to these people on any level of, of common decency or human empathy. They, don't, they do not possess human empathy. They do not possess human decency. So it does absolutely no good trying to appeal to them on that level, which, you know, take that to the logical conclusion. And, and how, how do you coerce these people to do the right thing. And, um, it's, well, it's, those, it's a very unpleasant peaceful change, impossible, make bloody revolution inevitable. Indeed. Indeed. Well, what do you think? We're, we're at an hour. Do you want to call this an episode? I was going to say, do you want to do topic two? Nah, <laughs> let's I, let's, I think let's wait till next week. Let's wait till next week. In fact, it's topic two is basically, you know, just a little bit more discussion <clears throat> about things that we've learned about the Vegas massacre. And I'm sure, you know, by next Tuesday, we're going to have that much more information and that much more context. Or so we'll misinformation, be able to as the case may be. I mean, I just or saw something that I just saw something now that ISIS is tripling down saying, no, that guy was our, our guy was was one of our people. He converted six months ago and they're starting to give specific information about it. So who knows? Uh, I'm still incredibly skeptical about that. I mean, they, well, I'm, not, I'm not putting any, any stock yeah. in. I'm just saying that yeah. it, it turns every time you turn around, there are three more new theories. And it's like, this is weird. Yep. And uh, what was the one, the one just a few hours ago, Russian mob or something like that? It's like, <laughs> Oh my gosh. And guys look, you know, don't take as gospel something that some anonymous commenter on some blog posts Oh, I have information that will be released shortly that says, da, 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 da. okay, if let me let me fill you in on something. If I ever actually had some serious, hardcore, extremely important information that would shed enormous amounts of light over major, major global events, I would immediately get it out on the internet as quickly as possible. I would make a video, which I would then, you know, put in a Dropbox and put on YouTube and have and say, people mirror this, mirror this, mirror this. If I had documents, I would get them on the web immediately. I would put them in a Dropbox. I would have as many people as possible copy, download, 
that's how you hedge against these things is distribute information. I'm sorry, but every single time it seems like you see someone say, hoo hoo, tee hee, I've got a secret. I, I have I have information, but of course I can't say anything now. Nine hundred and ninety-nine times out of a thousand, pardon my French, cover, you know, put the cat out. These people are completely full of shit. They get off. There's a lot of people who get off on putting uh, false information, misinformation out on the internet. And then they sit and they watch their web stats spike. And they, for some whatever bizarre reason, they get this huge rush off of generating attention and watching their web stats spike. And they are lying through their teeth and they know that they're lying through their teeth and they're making shit up. Don't go for that. Use common sense. What would you do? What would you do if you had happened to have been like, for example, neighbors with this guy Paddock and any of us could have been. I mean, he was living in a patio home on a golf course, you know, in some new built up suburban community outside of Vegas. Any one of us could have been living next to this guy. What if you had some serious hardcore information that that really genuinely shed light upon what in the hell was going on here? As a decent human being, wouldn't you say, crap, I have to get this out. I have to I have to distribute this. I have to do everything I can. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to if I let's say it's paper documentation of, of, of something, you know, let's say that you found let's say, for example, completely hypothetically that you did find some um, Islamic conversion bullshit literature in this guy's trash. It blew out of his trash can. You saw it blow out of his trash can. You go over, you pick it up, and you say, crap, this guy's reading Islamic crap, you know, and you have this. Okay, don't you think that you would document that, get the information out, go go to local law enforcement, and, you know, local is always the best. Start local. Those are generally the best guys. The best experience I had, you know, with law enforcement by far was with the local Lone Tree Police Department. Those guys were solid. They were really nice. Um, when I did the Koran burning, they were awesome. They came over to my house. They took a tour. You know, they wanted to see the interior and see the layout. And, you know, all of my weapon systems are just scattered throughout the house in strategic positions. I said, well, the a- I keep the AR right here. And, you know, I keep the 308 right here. And, <laughs> and I keep I keep the 887s upstairs. Da, 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 da. And they were just they were completely chill and completely cool. I think generally local law enforcement is your best is your best bet. So if you have something, if you have some information, get it out and then take it to local law enforcement. Um, but this, this, oh, I'm, I'm going to go on some random blog and leave some bullshit comment under an, an anonymous header. Uh, sorry, sorry. 999 times out of a thousand and maybe even orders of magnitude more than that. The person is completely full of shit. So, you know, gosh, just don't, don't believe everything you read on the internet. And people send me crap all the time. And yo, you have to look at this and you have to watch this video. And it's clear. It's clear that it's just bullshit. Um, You have to be wise as serpents, simple as doves. And there's a lot of this stuff that it's really easy to discern is just either people who, like I said, get off on attention and seeing their web stats spike or people who are low to mid-grade schizophren- schizophrenic 
and are to some extent just detached from reality. And anything they see, anything they hear instantly gets turned into quote unquote reality inside their mentally ill heads. That's why you've got these 9-11 conspiracy theorists who just keep taking plot devices from Star Trek The Next Generation and applying that to 9-11. And I'm completely serious. Holograms, tractor beams, shape-shifting lizard aliens. These are all plot devices from Star Trek The Next Generation. When people are schizophrenic, they become detached from reality. And these, these things come into their mind, something that they've seen on TV on a science fiction show. That, that enters into their mind and that it all gets tied up, twisted up in their mental illness, in their schizophrenia. And in their minds, that gets turned into reality. That's how you end up with crap like that. That's why you have all of these people who look up at the sky and see jet airplanes flying across the sky, leaving contrails of, um, you know, it's just jet fuel exhaust um, and there's, there's moisture in the upper atmosphere and it, uh, it condensates. And these people are absolutely convinced that, th- that they're being sprayed with mind control chemicals. No. No, it's it's just jet f- exhaust. The, the reason why the world's going to hell and the reason why your kids are are awful and stupid is because we have turned our back on God. And because, frankly, most people today are bad parents. They sit their kids in front of the television, send them off to Marxist public schools and, frankly, Marxist Catholic schools at this point. Their kids turn into little, into little sociopaths who don't, who don't know anything, who can't add, who can barely tie their own shoes. And then they say, well, why is that? Why are my kids so, so morally decrepit and and completely uneducated well the answer is because you're a bad parent it's because you dropped the ball but no 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 let's blame it let's look up at the sky watch the jets flying overhead and let's tell ourselves no no it's not my fault that i'm a bad parent it's 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 not my fault because my children are completely unchurched and i've sent them off to marxist public schools for their entire childhood no no that's not why my child my children are so awful. It's not my fault. It has nothing to do with me. It's clearly because people are spraying chemicals on all of us from the planes that are flying overhead. This is this kind of low-grade civilizational schizophrenia that we are just descending into. And you can't talk to these people. There's nothing you can say. And I, I remember one time I found a video of a guy who was, uh, it, this guy was probably genuinely schizophrenic. And he someone told him or he picked up on one of these schizophrenic conspiracy theory chat rooms somewhere that if you took and made a solution of vinegar and water and put it in a spray bottle and every time a plane went overhead if you sprayed the vinegar up into the air that you would be protected from the mind control chemicals that were being sprayed on you and so what this guy did is i mean it was it was funny but in in a, just a horrifically sad way. He had set up this thing in his backyard on his clothesline and he would take, you know, kitchen towels, tea towels, dish towels, and he would soak them in vinegar and he took a, a fan, you know, just a stand fan 
ran an extension cord out, sat this fan out in his backyard, spraying, uh, blowing on these vinegar-soaked towels that he had hung on his clothesline. And this was providing a protective force field, um, protecting him and his house from the mind control chemicals that the shape-shifting lizard Jews were spraying out of the airplanes that were going overhead. I sure and hope again, this guy didn't live by an airport. Well, uh, yeah, that wouldn't... Well, thank goodness, white vinegar is pretty darn cheap, so hopefully... And if he was cutting it enough, and, and that's the other thing I, I, I saw on this, this very sad schizophrenic website, is that you could dilute it. You know, you could cut the vinegar into water, so it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be too terribly expensive. But I mean, you look at things like that, and you realize that there's a non-trivial percentage of the population that is, has descended. I mean, culturally, we're just we're just descending because we've turned our back on God and turning your back on God makes you stupid and mortal sin makes you stupid and watching porn and watching filth on television and just living, living the degenerate sort of life that is more and more and more common in the United States. It makes you stupid. It makes you unable to process even the most simple logical progressions. And eventually you're unable to even, to even process and discern objective reality. And, you know, we've talked about this before, but if hot war does break out, the terror I have is who, who do you end? Who's next to you in the foxhole? Who do you end up next to in a foxhole? It's going to be a person who probably looks looks exteriorly as you first walk up to them completely normal. And then as you get to know them, you might come to the terrifying conclusion that you are in a foxhole next to someone who is utterly detached from reality. And then what do you do with that? How can you possibly, how can you possibly come together and fight a hot war and do what needs to be done? The most the most serious circumstances that a human being on this earth can find them in is, you know, a, a genuine hot combat situation and the people around you or even a non-trivial percentage of the people around you are, are essentially dead weight in a certain sense because they are detached from reality and are to one degree or another schizophrenic. What in the world do you do with that? And so I guess all we can do is pray and trust that Our Lady Undoer of Knots, uh, Our Lady of Fatima is going to uh, is going to get us all through this one way or the other. And even if that means that, you know, our lives are unnaturally cut short in this world. Well, you as we've been talking about at length, stay confessed and make sure that you are prepared to die. It, it, dying, dying a holy death doesn't necessarily mean dying at the age of 94, surrounded by family and friends in the comfort of a, of a bed in your own home. That's not necessarily what dying a holy, a happy, holy death means. You can die in combat, a happy, holy death. If you are, if you are confessed and you're ready to go. Keep, keep praying your rosary, keep making that, uh, habit or practice of, of, um, the perfect act of contrition and mm-hmm. um, spiritual communions, wear your scapular, and a reminder, tomorrow is Our Lady of Victory, uh, Our Lady yep. of the Rosary. Uh, other titles of hers, Refuge of Sinners. I mean, if you don't have Mary for your mother, you don't have God for your father. So take advantage of all the tools and, and spiritual weapons that have been given to us through the church. Make use of them. And for all those Protestants out there listening who have been taught to essentially hate Our Lady, and you just... 
think think about the insanity of that position, you know, think about the insanity of saying, I love Jesus, but oh, that Mary, I don't, I don't want anything to do with her. Um, th- this is God's mother. It is, it is his mother. She is the mother of God. And a lot of Protestants don't understand this. How, how can you, she's not God's mother. Well, then do you deny his humanity? Well, no, but well, then she's his mother, right? Well, and then the other side of that is, well, she's the mother, she's the mother of God. Well, she's not the mother of God. Well, then do do you deny his divinity? Well, no, guys, he's, he's true God and true man. And she is therefore the mother of God. And if you deny that, you are denying, you know, the base premise of all of this, that the second person of the triune Godhead incarnated as a man, she is the mother of God. And it is just, there is just not, I, I, I struggle to think with how, if you could hold her in contempt, how in the world you think you're going to make it. If you have that open and honest uh, personal relationship with Jesus, ask, ask him how he wants you to treat his mother. Yes, and you can think you, you can think about it in terms of how would you want anybody else to treat your mother, and what's always the the trope for the most insulting thing you can say to somebody? It's not mm-hmm. against them; it's, it's against their mother. Yep. Do you think Jesus is any different in that respect? Well, of course not, and of course she is. She is the queen of heaven, so she's the queen of the angels. She's the queen of heaven. She's the queen mother, so um, it just it it just isn't logical or sensible in any way to hold her in any sort of contempt, or to think that somehow she's in competition with with God. I mean, it's it's just absolutely ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. So yes, turn to her, flee to her, go and let her cover you with her mantle. Because we may not have much more time. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find we'll find out. Probably a podcast the middle of next week. I don't know exactly which day. It probably will not be Tuesday. So please don't uh, send in emails wondering where the podcast is Tuesday. There are schedule conflicts for that happening. But uh, there will definitely be, well, there will probably be one next week. I'm not going to say anything definite. There will probably be one next week, yes. <laughs> All uh, right. Email address for feedback if you want to send questions, comments, uh, other suggestions for how to suggestions for how to embrace Mary as your mother. Uh, Mm. Send those emails to podcast at barnhart.biz. This podcast is produced by Super Nerd Media. You can find out more at supernerdmedia.com. Any, oh, the um, general reminder, the masses for Anne's band, and yeah, general reminder, masses for Anne's benefactors. There, I said it. Are on set on Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, as well as a weekly requiem. Uh, Any parting thoughts beyond which we've already said? Oh, just re- reiterating my gratitude to one and all, to benefactors and to supporters, and be assured of my prayers every day before the Blessed Sacrament. Until next week, I am Super Nerd. And I'm Anne. Thanks, guys. God bless. 